Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss, coming to you from Isolation Studios in beautiful barren downtown Toronto. If you are like me, you're staying home to try and quell the spread of COVID-19, good for you. Wash your hands, don't touch your face. Trouble is, I'm not exactly sure what day it is. It's all like one big long day punctuated with like a Bloody Mary somewhere in the middle of the waking hours and then some food and then sleeping and then just rinse and repeat over and over again. So you have to kill time. If you are like me, you're looking for things to do. So I have put together three more movies that I think are worth a look. Perhaps you missed them the first time around. You can find all of these easily on VOD sites, look on iTunes, look on Crave TV, look on Netflix. You'll find all those movies in one of those places. First up, let's have a look at Ruby Sparks, a fantasy film from Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano that uses an ancient story, the Greek myth of Pygmalion, who fell in love with one of his creations only to have her come to life, as inspiration to explore an even older issue of how men and women relate to one another. Now, how would you react if you could create the perfect woman? That's the question Calvin, played by Paul Dano, must debate in this gentle romantic comedy. He's a blocked writer who peaked with his first book, a novel he wrote at the age of 19. Socially awkward and uncomfortable with his fame, he creates a relationship with one of his characters, Ruby Sparks, played by Zoe Kazan. He falls in love with this quirky character, spending days writing about her until slowly fiction becomes reality. Written by Zoe Kazan and directed by Little Miss Sunshine directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, Ruby Sparks is a refreshing wisp of fantasy that grounds itself in reality as much as possible. It asks questions. How do you react when you can control every move your creation makes and builds a real relationship between a lonely writer and his quote-unquote creation? Here Zoe Kazan tells me about the kind of art that she likes and how it influenced the writing of Ruby Sparks. My favorite, um, I think, pieces of art in general are things where the, um, the flights of fancy are uh, there to uh, illuminate the reality. Um, you know, obviously movies like um, Eternal Sunshine, uh, but also, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> the magic realist books like Mark has, you know, like I, I, I find th those metaphors to be, um, uh, enlightening sometimes in a way that just, uh, like a, a bald faced truth is not. I think it's sometimes easier to look at, look at yourself if you're given a little bit more room, um, or you're given a kind of imaginative, uh, entryway. Exactly. Um, so, you know, for me, I kn knew at a certain point that we, I could write a really broad comedy. And I think if I had done that, I would have just tried to sell that screenplay and, um, you know, make some money. Adam Sandler, I've got a script exactly. for you. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess I'm just, I don't see th that many movies about this thing, about the sort of issue of control in a relationship. And the, I mean, you see it in a movie like Secretary or something where it's very dark, but it, I wanted to write a love story that was about what happens after um, after the first flush of romance moves and on and you have to sort of deal with the actual person and um, uh, you know this seemed like a good way to, to discuss that without it being didactic or um, you know too too dark or too intense 
Um, I don't know. I, I was surprised. I didn't write an outline for this. Um, I, I wanted it to surprise me, and I was consistently surprised by what, you know, what came the next day. Dano and Kazan, a couple in real life, bring great chemistry along with acting chops and elevate a story that might have become a grungy male fantasy in the hands of someone like, I don't know, not Zoe Kazan, not Valerie Ferris, or the like, into a sweetly observed look at the nature of loneliness and love. Here, Paul Dano talks about being half of the real-life couple who plays a couple in the film. I think Zoe and I having a real relationship, playing two other people, but probably personal feelings coming to it as well. The script had more depth than even I anticipated, and the scenes took on a life that I almost didn't fully anticipate either, especially in the, the last third of the film. Well, it's interesting because you are a real-life couple, so th that brings with it uh, challenges, I guess, working together and that sort of thing. But it also, uh, does it lead to any kind of self-examination or no when you're doing this? Am I reading too much into this? Well... <sighs> Because this film is unique, being written, yeah. you know, written and performed by a couple, written, uh, written by one half of the couple, performed by the couple. Uh, I, you know, I think probably when I when I go to work, it, you know, Calvin, the character, is my cipher, and, and and I'm really not looking at it as what parts of me is Zoe using, and what parts of ex-boyfriends or you know characters that she's read in literature and whatever. You know, I look at the basic facts. Okay, his dad has passed away. He had a long relationship that's ended. He's lonely, got a dog to try and meet people. His brother's his only friend. You start with literally the big basics that were given to you and then go from there. So it felt like a whole new creation to me, even though I had read it the whole time. While he was writing it, once I started working on the character, you kind of go back to square one and say, what did the writer give you? And I think after working together, certainly our relationship um, has a, a it goes, it go, we, we went through something together. We went through something very intimate, challenging, um, something that we really cared about together. So certainly we learned something about each other through it and after it. I don't know where the two go together though. It's like your first baby. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, when we were at work, we both care so much about what we do. We were focused on this, you know, I wasn't thinking about us. I mean, I'm sure it was in the work naturally and, and, and all that, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it, it felt, it felt, it was very easy to go to work together. Driving home from work wasn't always easy, but at work together was easy. In the young Victoria, the only legitimate heir of England's King William, the teenage Victoria, played by Emily Blunt, gets caught up in the political machinations of her own family. Victoria's mother wants her to sign a regency order while her Belgian uncle schemes to arrange a marriage between the future monarch and Prince Albert, played by Rupert Friend, the man who will become the love of her life. Here, Emily Blunt tells me why it is so important to show a new side of Queen Victoria in the film. No one knows about the passion and the love. Everyone knows about the sour-faced lady wearing a hanky on her head and looking like she wants to, you know, top herself. And I think that it was really important to show that vibrancy that she had when she was younger. She was really the polar opposite. And so when Albert died after them having the most passionate marriage, 
a little piece of her, I think a lot of her died with him, actually, and that's why she mourned him so ferociously for the rest of her life. Emily Blunt breathes real life into her performance as Queen Victoria. It's a commanding performance that tops a visually beautiful film. She brings both the young woman discovering love for the first time and the monarch who wears a heavy crown to vivid life. Because she grew up in a very oppressive, lonely way, away from the court and the social graces and etiquette, she um, she had no idea actually that she was doing or say, saying the wrong thing. There was an irreverence that she had towards it because she, you know, had led this, this very strange and um, sad childhood. So she was very much trying to assert her power. As soon as she came to that age after that steely patience she'd had to endure <laughs> for, you know, years with the mother and the walking down the stairs holding the hand, I mean, it's... It's unimaginably lonely, actually. She, she wasn't allowed any friends. She couldn't read books. So she'd lived with the extreme of that um, ominous cloud. And then to um, be allowed only to go to the opera or the ballet. So she, led in it, she lived in, it, in extremes with that. And then she got to see beauty in, in all its wonder. And, you know, and her imagination would run wild. And so I think that's why she very much also wanted to marry for love and not because someone told her to partly out of a kind of teenage rebellious quality that she was like I'm not going to tell you I'm not, I'm not going to do what you want me to do um, but I think that she was a forward thinker she was a modern thinker for that time she wasn't willing to conform to any constraints that people were telling her to we shot at uh, Blenheim Palace and uh, you know Blenheim Palace is actually there was we shot the honeymoon scene there in the bedroom and that's where Victoria had actually slept in that bed. Wow. It was really wow. amazing. But I did find that very helpful to be in those locations and you're surrounded by the priceless paintings on the wall and um, you're walking literally down corridors that kings and queens are walked down. And uh, it helps not walking off set and seeing the back of a polystyrene wall. You know? It's like, you're like, oh, well, that's... Not real, so I think it definitely helped us. The last film we'll have a look at today, The World's End, exists somewhere at the intersection of The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Westworld, The Big Chill, and With Nail and I, but it's not a geographical location. The film, from the makers of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, is about a state of arrested development populated by a guy who never grew up and his friends who have. Well, and then there's robots. Gary King, played by Simon Pegg, can pinpoint the best night of his life. Hours after graduating school, he and four friends attempted the Golden Mile Pub Crawl. That's one mile, 12 pubs, in the quiet British town of Newton Haven. The pub crawl became an epic night for the team, even if he fell three short of the final pub on the list, The World's End. Years later, feeling nostalgic, Gary hits upon the idea of putting the band back together, so to speak, and relive the good old days. The movie becomes less about nostalgia, though, and more about survival when the townsfolk of Newton Haven are revealed to be automatons enlisting new recruits for their cause. But Gary remains focused. It'll take more than DNA-thieving robots to stop him from completing his childhood dream.
I asked director Edgar Wright and star Nick Frost if they thought this movie was tinged with sadness about the way people hang on to the past and let the present slip away. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that was, that's what the movie is about, is you've got like sort of five um, friends, like four of whom are grown-ups, one of whom wants to be a teenager again, and when he tries to turn back the clock, it has disastrous results. So it's kind of like a cautionary tale about the dangers of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So that's what the movie's really about. So, you know, I, I think we like that thing as well, because I think sort of, Shaun of the Dead had this as well, where they were like sort of, you know, sections that were darker, and I think that's more just about having the, hopefully having the courage of our convictions. So we like to think of these movies as that there's a Trojan horse element in terms of there's a zombie film, a cop film, and a sci-fi film, but we've smuggled in this relationship comedy it's like we, we like to think we, that we've given the audience a chocolate bar, but we forgot to tell them it was dark chocolate with chilli inside it's it. It's a red chilli inside. Yeah. So it's only when you're halfway through the oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I think, you know, to... I never tire of your mouthful oh, of chocolate face. Because oh, no. I'm also looking at someone unseen who's also eating a piece. Oh, and they always oh, 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 oh. uh, But also I think it's that... Uh, 40, 40 is such a landmark for... Yeah. Certainly for men, certainly for me, you know, is... You just—it's just you're just questioning everything all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just had a baby, so it's you know how long, how much longer am I going to live? Did I did I do all right? Is my house big enough? Is my house too big? Am I happy? Is that the only woman I'm ever going to be with again? Uh, you know, it, it, it's just questions. <laughs> I know you might laugh, but it, it, it's, no, it's, I know, it is these questions, you know. And, and I think uh, this this film is that the chance to go back and look, but it's. At what cost? You know, you have to be. I think you can only look back and enjoy. Uh, you know, you can only enjoy looking back if you if you have a solid foundation to pull you back to now. You know, there's a lot of imagery in the movies and even it's spoken aloud of like you've got to go forwards and not backwards. And then one of the action scenes is about one of the characters running the other way and like his friend going to get him to take him the other way. It's like you've got to push forwards. One person is kind of really trying to. Um, go backwards in time through the use of alcohol and the other person is trying to sort of fight to have a future you know like the other films in the three flavors cornetto trilogy Shaun of the dead hot fuzz and this movie the world's end is a memorable mix of characters and situation cornetto regular simon pegg and nick frost are front and center although playing against type Peg's take on Gary has much more swagger than we've seen from him in the past. He's a selfish motor mouth concerned only with his redemption and the completion of the Golden Mile Challenge. He's a living embodiment of the dangers of living in the past, but Peg somehow makes him bearable and very funny. He spouts the complicated dialogue effortlessly and check out the balancing act as he battles aliens and tries not to spill his pint. Frost plays it straight for the most part, playing a straight and narrow attorney who, and here's a mild spoiler, goes off the rails when the alien takeover plot is unveiled. His deadpan delivery in the first half pays off with big scene-stealing laughs in the second half when he really lets loose. The World's End isn't as consistently laugh-out-loud funny as Shaun of the Dead or the action-packed Hot Fuzz, but its thematic core, the difficulty of growing up, is evident in every frame, making it the most mature of the Cornetto films. Well, that's it for today from Isolation Studios, whatever day it is. Is it 
Frog Day, Blurg Day, I don't even know. I've forgotten the names of the day. It's just one long time with lots of minutes in it to fill up until we were finally able to get life back to normal. I hope some of these suggestions work for you. Just keep checking back here. I'll put one of these up every day or so, and we'll get through this together one movie at a time. I'm Richard Krause. Thanks for listening.